this last week of this study, and and as I've been talking to the different groups and sending out emails and getting uh, emails back and comments back from people, I think it's been a real encouragement to people. I think it's been exciting for those that have been in groups on a regular basis, week after week, to be studying this together. I think uh, that uh, Henry Blackaby, the writer of the study, has really um, focused us in on how to um, consider and look and be aware that God is always at work around us and seeing where God is working and then uh, trusting in him to join him in where he's working and seeing that as an invitation to come and join him and work with him in what he's doing for the kingdom. And it's just, I, I just been hearing lots of great comments back about that. Um, but as I was thinking about this final message and thinking, you know, where to go with the conclusion of it and, and not just a summary as I was, as I was thinking, I, I thought I, I, I sort of what was put on my heart is that as we go through this study, it's been uh, kind of an, an encouragement, it's been an exhortation, it's been sort of a, a, a kind of a rah-rah, you know, get on board with God and, and do great things for his kingdom, and I know that it has lit a fire uh, under a lot of people in terms of their walk with God and their knowing God, and that's fantastic that that fire has been lit. But at the same time, there's been this other sort of voice in my heart, which has been that not everybody is feeling that same way. Even as you're doing the study, not everybody is hearing God's voice that clearly or, or they're not in that same sort of place of joining Him in what He is doing. Or, or they are maybe in the study and they're going through it for the last 12 weeks and, and maybe they're getting the message that, you know, oh, I, you know, i got to find out what God's doing and i got to get out there and do it and i got to do all this work for God and, and I just don't see where He's working and I don't feel like I'm part of this you know, activity that's accomplishing all these things. And so there's a, in the conclusion here, I just want to take some time and understand that we don't want to get so got, caught up in our need to accomplish for God that it burns us out or that we miss the relationship that He wants to have with us. And as some of us have been going through this study, we may have been feeling like we're not hearing His voice and we're not filled with the same enthusiasm that everybody else around us seems to have, how they're, you know, they're hearing God's voice and they're joining Him in what they're doing. And we don't see what God is doing in our life all that clearly. And we're kind of discouraged maybe by what's going on in our life. We don't feel like we're part of God's A-team. In fact, I know some of us, I know some of us here today are feeling discouraged and despondent and perhaps even defeated. And I was talking to one group leader just this morning, actually, as we were talking about the sermon, and she said that, that they had dealt with this feeling in their own group at times, that the God-sized challenges were too intimidating for people. They, they thought, you know, I don't know if I can handle something God-sized right now in my life. And so they changed very wisely the wording to God-shaped, and I like that, that it was, they're looking for God-shaped things that are happening in their life and doing those things that are God-shaped. And so this morning, we're going to look at this reality of, of what is God-sized for us at the place where we're at, if we don't really feel like we're God's, on God's A-team, and that we're not really feeling all that enthusiasm to be accomplishing things for God or that we can accomplish things for God. And so this sermon is for that encouragement, for those people who you know, maybe aren't caught up in the fire of what's going on or the, the encouragement of, of you know, so much stuff happening for God. And the God-sized job that we're going to look at today for the for the Elijah. I mean the God-sized task for this guy at this point in his life was just getting out of bed and making breakfast. That was his God-sized task. He couldn't even handle that. And the angel of the Lord had to come along and help. And so we're looking in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. You can turn in your Bible there. There might be one in the seat back in front of you or you can tap there on your phone however you get there. 1 Kings 19 1 to 18. And uh, I'm going to read through the section 
And I want you to be listening to the place that Elijah is at, this prophet of God, and how God responds to Elijah. And that when we conclude this study of hearing God speak and doing His will, that we just understand that this is our God and how He meets us where we're at. And I'm just going to pray before we read the Word of God. Father God, this morning we look into Your Scripture to be encouraged, to be restored, to also know You, to see You, who You are. You have given us Your Scripture to tell us about You, to to reveal Yourself. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts would be opened, our minds would be opened, that we would see in this testimony of Your prophet exactly the God that we worship and the God that loves us and the God that has a relationship with us, this God that we are listening to and that we are joining in Your redemptive work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Kings 19, and we're reading verses 1 to 18, and I'll just set it up for you a little bit. Um, I don't know if you remember this, the Elijah the prophet, and uh, probably you'll, most of you, if you know about Elijah, remember sort of his most famous showdown on Mount Carmel with the priests of Baal, right? 450 priests of Baal on one side with their altar, and Elijah on the other side by himself with his altar, 450 priests of Baal, who are uh, trying to call down fire on their altar. They dance around, they cut themselves. You know, Elijah is on top of his game. He talks some trash to them. You know, hey, maybe your God's, you know, going to the washroom, or maybe he's asleep. You know, you should, you know, dance harder. Maybe he'll come. And, uh, you know, nothing happens. And then Elijah calls, asks his God, asks our God to bring down fire. The fire comes down, burns up the sacrifice, burns up the altar, burns up the water that was dumped all over the altar, burns everything up, and it's all gone. And uh, Elijah is just amazing victory, and he's expecting the restoration of Israel from this. He actually uh, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he runs all the way to the capital city of Jezreel, um, probably expecting that, you know, oh, Jezebel's going to be overturned, Jezebel and Ahab will be thrown out of Israel, God's going to do something, or the people are going to revolt against this uh, pagan worship, and, uh, you know, Israel's going to come back to God. And he gets to the capital city, and none of this happens. He gets to the capital city, and, and there's nobody saying, oh, you know, bring back, you know, Yahweh, you know, out with Baal, in with God. You know, there's none of that going on. And in fact, Jezebel says, yeah, I've heard about you, and may the gods do worse to me if you're not dead 24 hours from now. And so Elijah does not get the victory that he thought he was going to get out of this. And that brings us to this point now where Elijah is afraid in 1 Kings 19, 1-18. It says, Ahab told Jezebel that all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, 
the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts and for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maloha, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. And so here we have a situation where this is a man who heard God's voice and had and was working where God was working, and God was active in doing things within his nation. And he had had this amazing victory on Mount Carmel, and he thought, this is it. Like, I am God's man. I have dealt this blow to the prophets of Baal, and I have proven to everybody in Israel and in my nation that God is the God that needs to be worshipped. The victory is mine. And he runs to the capital city of Jezreel, And I think he ran there because he was expecting that victory to happen. God's going to smite Jezebel. He's going to take out Ahab. You know, people are going to return to the Lord. And this is all going to happen. And when he gets there, he ends up getting his life threatened by the queen. And he's threatened. You know, God, may God kill me and do more to you if you're not dead 24 hours from now. And so he runs and he's dejected. Because he thought God had a plan to restore Israel, and now he's a hunted man. And he just doesn't understand what God is doing. He, he, he really doesn't know who God is anymore. And as I said, that's, that's where even as we go through this study, some of you have been going through this study saying, I'm not feeling what everybody else is feeling. I'm not getting it. I don't hear God's voice. I don't feel like I understand where God is working. I look at my life, even after coming off victories, I know God's done great things in my life, but right now it's not happening. I thought that great things were going to happen in my family. I thought things were going to change in the, in, in the lives of my friends. I thought things were going to be different at church. I thought my ministry was going to be different. I thought my life was going to be different, but I don't get it. I don't even understand God anymore, let alone hear him. I don't even know who he is. And that's where Elijah's at. And so he just quits and he runs, right? Verse 3, he leaves his servant behind. Now, he doesn't have a servant because he's a rich man. He has a servant because he's a prophet of God. Like, this is his ministry staff. So he's like, I'm done. I quit. I fired my staff. I'm out in the desert. I just want to die. I'm done the ministry, God. I'm finished. He, he, he runs away. I don't, I don't need my ministry staff. I don't need any help. I, I'm, I'm done doing whatever it is that you want me to do, Lord. I'm finished. 
And depending on who we think God is and what we think God wants from us, we can easily get into this situation where we just throw our hands up at a complete loss for what God expects from us. You know, it's like, God, I've prayed. I've tried to see where you worked. I've tried to join you in your work. I think I've seen success. But then things just don't work out in my life the way I'm expecting them to. I don't understand why you're not blessing this or why you're not giving me victory here or why my life hasn't changed there. And so we can just fall into dejection of not seeing the plans we thought God had for our lives come to fruition. We can fall into this sense of defeat where it just seems like we've barely made a dent or had any effect on what's going on in the kingdom of God or even in our own life. But what we want to learn here and what we want to see here is that first and foremost, God is not so much interested in what Elijah thinks of himself. And he is not so much interested in what Elijah can or can't accomplish for him. He's not so much interested in all the great things that Elijah has done or is going to do. First and foremost, God is concerned about Elijah. Elijah thought he was a failure. He thought he hadn't accomplished what he thought was God's plan. Israel wasn't kicking out Jezebel. They weren't turning back to God. That's what Elijah thought was important. He thought thought what made him important and what made him worthy was all the stuff he could do for God. But God is like, no, what I care about first, Elijah, is you. And we get to look now at how God comes to Elijah, his servant, and how God shows Elijah who he is and how he has compassion and care for his people. First, we see that God meets Elijah where he is, and God will meet you wherever you are. Elijah is completely out of strength. He's out of miracles. He's out of ministry plans. He's out of clever ideas. He has no idea how to get Israel back on track anymore. He's done everything. He's blown it all on this one big Mount Carmel showdown. And he thought that was going to do it, and it didn't work. And in verse 4, he says, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. I mean, this is real. This is a real place that the people of God can find themselves. This is a real place where as followers of God, we can find ourselves. It's enough, God. Just take away my life. And we've been touched by suicide too many times here in Halliburton. Even in this wider church community, in our own families, where people have just reached that point where it's like, I'm done. And that's where Elijah is. He he doesn't want to live anymore. There's people here in in a crowd this size. I know that there's people here who have been here, who have maybe been here recently in this place where Elijah is, that have considered their life is worthless. Listen to his words here. He he says, I'm I'm no better than my father's. He says, "I, I don't measure up to my family. I don't measure up to God. I don't even measure up to myself. And he's laying down in the wilderness under a tree saying, God, just take my life. This is where Elijah's at. But this is where God will meet Elijah. This is where God will meet you, if this is where you're at. There is no place in your life that you can go that God will not meet you. But we don't shy away from the fact that this is a real place that God's people can find themselves alone in a desert, in a wilderness, maybe just a desert and a wilderness of their own mind, wishing to die. But I do want to point out here, just notice, even as he pours out that raw, honest feeling to God and asks God to end his life, he says, Oh Lord, take away my life. 
as God's child, Elisha does not assume that his life is his own to take. He prays for God to take his life, but he doesn't assume that he can take his own life. Because it's not his life, it's God's. And God has other plans for Elijah. God has other plans for you. And whether you are in a deep, as deep in the well as Elijah is, or you are just weary and ready to give up and feeling like you can't please God or you can't do enough for him, God will meet you there. Even if you're not on the spiritual mountain, even if you're deep in the valley, God meets Elijah where he is. God will meet you where you are. And the first thing we notice here, and it's important, is that God meets Elijah's physical needs. God meets Elijah's physical needs. God sends an angel, but look at what this angel does. Does the angel come to Elijah and say, fear not, like he did to Gideon? Does he come to Elijah and and give him a pep talk? Or does the angel come and exhort Elijah to repent of his doubt and his faithlessness in God? No, the, the angel comes to Elijah who's lying there in the wilderness, despondent and despairing even of his life, and he cooks him a meal, right? He, he makes him breakfast. He's like, here's a guy who can't even get out of bed in the morning. This guy does not need a sermon. He needs breakfast. And that's where God meets him. He cooks him a meal. He just touches him gently and says, eat something. You're you're wearing yourself out on this mission that you are on. That's not my intent for you. And God, unlike some Christians, is not as hyper-spiritual as you might think. Right? God made the material. God does not presume that because someone is dejected and in despair and defeated that it's entirely a spiritual problem. The angel does not pull out the spiritual checklist and start diagnosing Elijah's faith, right? Like some Christians do. When you come to them and you say you're, you're, you're feeling despair or you're feeling depressed or you're feeling despondent and they pull out their spiritual checklist and they say, okay, Elijah, have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed all known sin? Have you claimed all the promises? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you pleaded the blood? Have you thanked God? Have you rejoiced in all things? Have you worshipped? You know, have you done all these things, Elijah, to, to get rid of this despair that you're in? God knows Elijah is a man. God made the physical and the spiritual. Right? Sometimes you don't need prayer or a lecture or a sermon. You need to sleep in and have a warm breakfast and a quiet morning by the lake. Not Sunday morning. Be here Sunday morning. <laughs> But, no, I'm just kidding. Even Sunday morning, if if you just need a warm breakfast and a quiet time by the lake, do that. Because God knows, God sees Elijah, and he knows he doesn't always need another sermon. Sometimes he just needs a meal at a good restaurant to get his strength back. Psalm 103.14 is such a great verse. Psalm 103, 13 and 14 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Get this, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Okay, like if you are in the dumps, if you are in despair, if you are in depression, if you are wondering where God's voice is, if you are wondering where the victory is in your life, if you are at the bottom of the well, God knows your frame. He remembers that we're made of dust. King James says clay. He remembers that he formed us from clay. We're physical beings. God knows we have a physical nature. And he starts there. Get some rest. Get some food. And so the angel gives him those. And then secondly, God meets Elijah's relational and psychological needs. He listens to Elijah. He cooks him a meal. And then he just listens to what Elijah has to say. 
Verse 9, the angel starts with a question. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then Elijah pours out all his feelings to God. And it's actually very interesting, the things that Elijah says. And, and we'll see from his own words how Elijah should actually be able to diagnose himself if he just listened to the things he was saying. But always keep this in mind. When, when God asks you a question, when you're praying or you're reading the Bible or you just get the impression that God is putting something on your heart and He's asking you, He's revealing something in your heart. He, he's drawing out of you a confession or a testimony of just the state of the union in your life. Like, this is just where things are at with me. When, when God draws those things out, or you pray and confess those things and speak those things to God, you have to understand, when God is asking a question and drawing those things out of your heart, it's not for His information. It's not for Him to learn anything. God already knows. Right? So when God draws those things out of your heart, when he asks Elijah, what are you doing here? It's not because God didn't know. He's like, oh, Elijah, I didn't. What are you doing here? I thought you were in Jezreel. God knew why he was there. But he wants Elijah to know why he's there. He wants to draw it out for Elijah to know. God questions us so that we can discover things about ourselves. When God tests us, it's not so that He can learn the condition of our heart to see whether we pass the test. It's so that we can learn whether we pass the test. It's not so that God can discover what's in the depths of our heart. He already knows the depths of our heart. When God questions us, it's so that we can discover the depths of our heart. God already knows exactly who and what we are and what's going on, but he will prod us, he will test us, so that we can discover the condition of ourselves and our relationship with him. And as Elijah answers, his answers unearth so much, but God isn't answering back. He just asks and listens to Elijah. In verse 13, God asks him a second time. He says the same thing. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah spills his heart out again to God. And this just shows us the wisdom of God. Sometimes we just need relationship. right? We just need time to process. We just need to sort out our feelings and come to grips with how our circumstances are making us feel. Whatever we feel, we feel. We can't deny our feelings. right? When somebody says, this is how I feel, husbands, this is a lesson for you. right? I'll just give you this one. This is a freebie. right? <laughs> After 25 years of marriage, if she's saying that's how she feels... That's how she feels. You can't deny it. You can't say she shouldn't feel that way, or she should feel this, or it should be different, or no, you're not feeling that, you're feeling something different. No, how you feel is how you feel. Now, maybe you got yourself worked into that position, maybe you got yourself there for the wrong reasons, whatever, but, but God does not deny how we feel. Our feelings are real. How we feel is how we feel. How Elijah feels here is how he feels. And God doesn't say, oh, Elijah, you shouldn't feel that way. You know, you should be feeling differently. No, God just listens, because how, how Elijah feels is really how he feels. And sometimes we just have to be honest about where we're at and what we're feeling. Now, we may need to change our feelings. We may need to work on our feelings. We may need to adjust our feelings. We may be feeling them for the wrong reasons, but they're real feelings, and so we need to deal with them as being real. And God will meet you where you are at, regardless of what your feelings are. It's safe to go to God and say, God, I'm done. I just, I, I'm finished. And God will say, well, why are you there? Why is that how you're feeling? And you can just spill your guts like Elijah and just say, man, they killed the prophets. They're trying to hunt me down. Nobody serves you. Whatever it is, this is what Elijah's feeling. So this is why I feel this way. 
God made us as relational beings. He knows that we have feelings. God made them. He's not afraid of them. He created them. So he meets Elijah's physical needs. He meets Elijah's relational needs. He just listens to him. But then God meets Elijah's spiritual needs because he knows that Elijah needs to hear from God. He knows that God, God knows that he eventually has to speak because man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And so God knows that he has to speak into Elijah's life, but he just gets there so gently, so compassionately, so slowly. Just starts with, with breakfast and a conversation. And he just lets Elijah speak. And then eventually he gets, he's like, Elijah, you still need my word. You're, you're a spiritual being of mine. You need my presence and my word. And so he does speak. And almost all of this encounter is taking place on Mount Horeb. don't know if you noticed that. that. Elijah ran away to the desert, and then he got this meal, and then he went to Mount Horeb. He was on a mission. He was returning to God. And of all the things maybe Elijah did wrong leading up to this, or his expectations being wrong, this is the one thing Elijah definitely did right. When you feel this way, you lean into God. You go to the mountain of God. You run to God when you feel this way. Right? Elijah did this part right, for sure. He went to Mount Horeb. Where is Mount Horeb? What is, why is it called the mountain of God? Well, most of you would recognize this mountain by its more popular name. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. This is where God met his people. This is where he gave the law. This is where Moses took the people of Israel after they escaped from Egypt. And so Elijah says, I'm going to Mount Sinai. I am going to the mountain of God. This is where God met his people, and I need to meet God. And now keep in mind here, it says in verse 9, he came there to a cave and lodged in the cave. So he goes to Mount Sinai and he puts himself in a cave. Or we could say, very close word in the Hebrew, it's not the exact same Hebrew word, but very close word, root word, he put himself in a cleft of the rock. Now what happened on Mount Sinai in a cleft of the rock a few centuries earlier? In Exodus 33, you remember Moses wanted to see the glory of God. Moses wanted to encounter God, to experience God, just as Elijah needs to meet God here again. And, Moses, and God said to Moses, you remember what happened, right? Moses said, hide yourself in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you as I pass by. And I'll let you see a little bit of me. Because that's all you can handle. And now we have Elijah at Mount Sinai in a cave in the cleft of a rock saying, I want to see you, God. I need to encounter you. Some commenters think this could be the exact same cave. I mean, it was probably a pretty holy place. It might be a place people knew. That was, yeah, that was where Moses was when God passed by. And Elijah, he goes to Mount Sinai. He goes to the cleft in the rock. He says, I need to encounter God. And God meets Elijah there. He meets his spiritual needs. He meets his need to encounter the living God. Now, how is it that God speaks to Elijah? How is it that God reveals himself to Elijah when he needs him the most? In verse 11, he said, this is God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by. Boy, that sounds familiar. Just like Moses, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. 
And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The King James, I know you know it. A still, small voice. The sound of a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now the text says here that God was not in the wind and not in the earthquake and not in the fire. But it doesn't mean that God is never a wind or never an earthquake or never a fire. It can't mean that because it says the Lord passed by and those things came when the Lord passed by. God was those things, earthquake and wind and hurricane and fire. And God has been those things, all of those things before as He has appeared to His people. Right? God was a burning bush to Moses. He was a a pillar of fire leading the people through the desert. At the end of the book of Job, God speaks to Job out of a windstorm. At Pentecost, God comes to them as a rushing wind. Who was He to Moses right here at Mount Sinai? He came to Mount Sinai shaking the mountain. He was an earthquake. So God is wind and fire and earthquake. When God wants to be wind and fire and earthquake, God will show up as an earthquake if He needs to. But now God also comes to Elijah as a still, small voice, as a whisper. And when we're in the place that Elijah's at, oh, aren't we so glad that God shows up as a whisper? Because we couldn't handle if he yelled. Right? If God shouted at us, we would be destroyed. But God doesn't shout. God doesn't yell. He's not a fire. He's not an earthquake when we are in this place that Elijah is in. He comes as a still, small voice. God has been so compassionate with Elijah. He's been so careful with Elijah. But he's still correcting. He's still redeeming. He's still restoring. He's still shifting. He's still transforming Elijah. Elijah's condemned himself because he said, I've been zealous and my ministry plan has been amazing and I've executed it so well and I had all this victory and I'm the only one left. Elijah thinks he knows who God is supposed to be and how God is supposed to act. Elijah thinks that God has let him down by not showing up as fire or earthquakes or something extravagant to overthrow Jezebel and turn Israel back to himself. And so Elijah is in despair because he thinks his plan has failed. But God doesn't work to Elijah's plan. Elijah's depression is manufactured by his mistake about who God is and how he's working. Elijah thinks his despair is God's fault when in fact it's really his own. He's dejected because the plan isn't working the way he wanted it to. God has not appeared the way he thought God should appear. And God has been very slow and gentle to unpack Elijah's heart so that he can see this. So that when Elijah says, look, I've been zealous and my ministry plan was amazing and I did an awesome job and you're the one who didn't show up and they're all trying to kill me now. God's just saying, that's not what happened. When God speaks, this is what he tells Elijah in verses 15 to 18. Verses 15 to 18, he says, actually, Elijah, I do have a plan. I have a plan. Here's my plan. I want you to go and anoint Haziel as king of Syria and anoint Jehu as king of Israel and Elisha as my new prophet. And these guys will accomplish my plan. And by the way, there's still 7,000 people in Israel who have never bowed the knee to Baal or kissed his statue. You think you're alone? I've got 7,000 more of you. You're not alone, Elijah. You're, you're, You're caught up in this, you're in this deep, dark well in your mind. But it's not what's real. Let let me just kind of draw you out into the bigger picture of what's going on here. You've done great things, Elijah, but there are great many more things that are going to happen and they're not all going to happen by you. I have a plan, God says. I've been working on my plan all along. What made you think I don't have a plan? 
It wasn't your plan, but I have a plan. And you've been depressed and you're in despair because you thought your ministry was the cat's pajamas and it didn't work the way you hoped it would. And Elijah, your eyes were on what you expected me to do and not on what I was doing. You've been very optimistic about your own results, but not necessarily hopeful in me. And that's not to say that Elijah was not truly exhausted or that he shouldn't have been exhausted. He was worn out. He was truly in despair. He felt really abandoned and hopeless. But that was not because God had left Elijah or that God's plans were failing. It's because Elijah had missed what God was doing, even as he was doing God's work. But that's okay. God met him there in that. And we can do the same thing. We can be way too optimistic about our own ministry goals or just our own life goals. And, and we can be way too optimistic about what we think God is doing in our life or what we think God should be taking in our life and what we want Him to be doing for us. And we then start to not pin our hopes on God, but pin our hopes on what we think the results of our life should be. And that's what Elijah did. He had this great success on Mount Carmel and he, was not, he stopped pinning his hopes on God and he started pinning his hopes on Israel's actually going to change. Like, in my, like this week, I'm going to turn Israel around all by myself right now. And he put his hope in the results and then he didn't get it. And all of a sudden, he falls into despair. And we can do the same things. We can pin our hopes on what we want our life to turn out like and not have our hope in God. And when our life doesn't turn out the way we thought we understood it was going to, We're in despair and we're in defeat. But God will meet us there and he will gently lead us back and say, no, I've got a plan. Not necessarily the plan you thought. You, You got off track there, but I've got a plan. Things are happening. You're not alone. I'm going to do things. I got 7,000 people just like you, Elijah, that have never worshiped Baal. You're not alone. And so when we find ourselves with Elijah, when we find ourselves in that place, it's just, shh, listen, for God still quiet voice to speak to us and tell us what he's doing. And Elijah was also very pessimistic about himself. Remember his words when he spilled out his heart to God. He says, I'm the only one left and they want to kill me too. Elijah couldn't see what was going on outside his own little bubble. And we can do that in our life too. You know, I work so hard and I'm doing all this stuff for God and nobody's doing things that I'm doing for God and everybody should be doing the same thing I'm doing or working just as hard. And nobody sees the need that I see. And we get wrapped up in our plans and our goals and our way of doing things. And we miss out the fact that God is at work in a thousand ways around us and in and through other people that we don't even know about. So that when our little plans don't work out, we just figure there's something wrong with the church or there's something wrong with this generation of Christians or there's something wrong with this community. They don't get it because they're not working as hard as I am. And when my stuff doesn't work, then maybe I guess nothing's working because I've been working really hard and nobody else has been. And God takes Elijah and says, you're not alone in the wilderness. You think you're all alone? i got 7,000 of you. i got 7,000 still at work in Israel that will not worship Baal and are part of my plans. You think I put all the hope of Israel on your shoulders? Man, you're taking on way more than I expected you to do. i got lots of help for you, Elijah. Just go anoint these guys. And it'll, I, I'm doing stuff. And Elijah, it's not just the 7,000. I'm also using people like Haziel, too, who you need to go and anoint for me. And now you got to understand, it's a whole separate thing, but, but there's no record that Haziel was ever a follower of God. He's a pagan king of a different nation, Syria. But God says, I'm going to do some stuff with Haziel, Elijah, in ways that you can't even imagine. God does things. We have to understand this. God does things even outside of the Baptist church. 
right? God does things even outside of the evangelical church. God is working even outside of Christians. God is doing 10,000 things and using people. They don't even know they're being used by God. But God is accomplishing His purposes. And so he says, Elijah, like, you don't want to kill yourself. You want to stay alive for the next few years and see what I'm going to do to your nation. Through people you don't even know or you couldn't even expect me to use. Guys like pagan kings are going to make differences in my people to my plan. And they don't even know it. And you're going to go and anoint them so I can get them started. Elijah, you just don't even know what I can do. And so now, Elijah, you've been paying this price of despair because you've had too small a view of me. You have too small a view of God. You've been thinking too short term. You've been thinking too narrowly about what God is doing and will do. And you're exhausted because you think you have to do it all yourself. But God comes to Elijah with a word of grace. And he comes to us with the same word of grace through Jesus Christ. And so again, if, if you've been doing this study and you're saying, I'm not hearing God and you know, all these people are lit up and on fire and that's awesome. We want to be lit and on fire and looking where God is working and going and joining Him. But I get it. I understand that there are people that are like Elijah right now and they're in the place that Elijah's at. And they're saying, I, f- I feel like I, I just want to die because my life is not anything like what all these lit people are like. And Jesus comes, or God comes with a word of grace, and he comes to us with a word of grace. And that grace is through Jesus Christ. This has all been Old Testament. Where's Jesus in this text? Well, look again with me quickly at how God comes in verse 11. Just notice this. In verse 11, God told Elijah to go out and stand on the mountain, right? That's what he told him to do, go out and stand on the mountain. And then he comes as earth, wind, and fire. But notice, Elijah didn't actually go out at that time. He was still in the cave. The wind came and the mountain, the rocks were broken to pieces by the presence of God as he came before the mountain, before the cave. And it was the rocks that were burnt and shattered and broken. And Elijah then hears a low whisper and then he puts on his cloak and leaves the cave. When God was earth and wind and fire, the rock protected Elijah. It says the rocks were smashed and the mountain was torn to pieces before the Lord. And then a whisper comes and coaxes him out to meet his God in quiet and gentleness and peace. We have a rock that protects us from the full force of God's presence. We have a rock without whom we could not stand before God. The rock is Jesus Christ. We have a rock that is our mediator between us and God. We have a rock in Jesus Christ who needs to be struck in order for the water to flow or for the Holy Spirit to flow. And when the rock of Christ is struck and broken, then we receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus being broken so that God is able to come to us gently and so that the Holy Spirit can come and work in us. And this is a bit of a two-parter because next week we're going to look more closely at how God is actually at work in us. But just notice that when God comes to us, He comes to us through Jesus Christ. There is a rock that has borne the force of God's presence. 
and allows God to come to us with a gentle whisper and with the Holy Spirit to minister to us. Just look at the wisdom and compassion and care of God and how he deals with Elijah. He comes and he meets his physical needs. He comes and he meets his relational needs. He comes and he meets his spiritual needs. And he guides him back into communion with himself. And that's where God wants to meet you if you're where Elijah is. Because we're not always on top of the mountain spiritually. Sometimes we're down in the valley. Sometimes we're in a well in the valley, the bottom of the well. But God will meet you there. God will meet you wherever you are. Let's pray.